be with you. I hope that you are here to study God's Word. If you have your Bibles, be turning them to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. You know, it's a, it's a difficult thing sometimes to understand why things happen. And Daniel chapter 6 is a story that you and I have heard since probably before we ever went to public school. Daniel in the lion's den. But this evening, I hope to show you that this is more than just a children's story. That this message, message of hope, example of faith, is intended to strengthen us in our darkest hours. When was the last time that you were really afraid? Have you ever truly been afraid for your life? Many of you know that I had a serious car accident last Friday night. I was driving my little Mini Cooper. It's not considered by most to be the safest car because it's so small. And I was driving on the interstate, 70 mile per hour speed zone. And I had it on cruise and I was in the right lane. And I was heading on up to Gatlinburg or Sevierville, Tennessee to speak at Polishing the Pulpit for the next several days. And I'd gotten about an hour out of town, not quite to Birmingham, and someone came up beside me. At first I could hear the squealing behind my car. And you can always tell when somebody's about to crash or have an accident because you hear all this ruckus. But because of the, it being in my blind spot, I couldn't quite see who was about to have a wreck. Little did I know that he was speeding much faster than the speed limit and quickly overtook my car and collided into the side of it. So he shifted improperly from the left lane to the right lane directly into the side of my car, forcing my car into the median, which would have been fine. Except then, a few yards later, uh, a metal guardrail started. And so my car, 70 miles an hour, collided into the end of the guardrail and proceeded to eat up about 20 feet of guardrail. My wife posted a picture of the car and needless to say, I'm not going to be able to get much for it now. I think that the challenge for me came when I had to decide, staring at the guardrail head on, whether or not I was going to try to jerk the wheel and somehow divert my car away from the guardrail or take the guardrail on head on. And I decided this, the only thing between me and that guardrail was the engine block. So I squared it up with the engine block rather than trying to do a quick turn and, and the guardrail end up in the side of the car on my side. And it turned out that was the right move. But I have to admit, I was afraid for my life for those few seconds. I may have been afraid for my life before, but I don't remember it. But that, that was for real. Um, I wasn't panicky, 
but I didn't have any options. And so I collided into it. That has had some residual effect. First day I was driving after a couple of days of, with the accident, after the accident, I was sitting at an intersection and a car proceeded to turn, make a right turn, and go past me. And out of my peripheral vision, I caught that car. And it startled me. I guess because that was the same sort of impact or the same thing that triggered the, the accident. I don't know. I thought it was kind of weird. Fear is a weird thing. Tonight, I want to tell you, though, I want God's word to show you that we need not be afraid. Fifty-four times in the Bible, at least the King James Version, God promises us we don't need to be afraid. In fact, he's emphatic about it. He commands us, be not afraid. He's not talking about not being afraid because life is going to be blissful. Because you won't face persecution. Let me just show you one passage. Go to the very end of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. And start in verse 21 with me. Or start in verse 10. He says, fear, speaking to the church in Smyrna. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Don't be afraid. But he doesn't say don't be afraid because you won't suffer. He says don't be afraid even though you will suffer. He goes on to say, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death. That doesn't mean be faithful until you die of old age. That means be faithful even if the price that you have to pay is death, physical death. And I will give thee a crown of life. It's a beautiful promise. Crown of life. But it's conditioned on you not being afraid. Even when there's good reason. To be afraid. It reminds me of news reports of Sinjar Mountain in Iraq, where hundreds of villagers in Iraq have been rounded up and subjected to some very harsh conditions, having trouble finding food and water because they've had to leave their homes because of persecution by ISIS and Muslim terrorists primarily because they profess to be Christians. They've been raped. They've been killed. Now, I don't know their relationship to Christ. But I do know the world persecutes those who invoke His name. And I do know that that kind of persecution is becoming something more and more common and something that I believe we are going to experience as Christians in this country more and more. The bad news is that as Christians in this country, you're going to have to defend more and more your faith. 
The good news is, as Christians in this country, you're going to get to defend more and more your faith. I am convinced that you and I have not been promised an easy life, but we have been promised that we can be salt to the earth and light to the world, and in large part, it will be turned on our response whether we fear the world more than we fear God, whether we fear physical death more than we fear eternal damnation. I say all that to set up the story in Daniel chapter 6. So turn with me, and I, I want to share something that comes from a commentator, Michael Whitworth, member of the church, gospel preacher. And I recommend his commentary on the book of Daniel. It's easy to read. He made this statement in reference to this story. He said, God calls some to win by living and others to win by dying. But life or death, God rules and we serve Him. That's a beautiful statement. And I think it reflects what I believe is going on in this chapter. Now, let's begin with Daniel chapter, chapter 6. And let's begin with verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom. Now, this is the largest kingdom known to man up to this point in time in history. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was to be the first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. And then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes and the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, one month, Save for thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this decree and sign the writing, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. You know, life has high mountains and low valleys. Those that seem to admire you, can quickly become your enemy. You feel like you're on top of the world today and tomorrow you're being thrown in the bottom of the dungeon. Such is life. The question is not, there is no promise, there is no guarantee that you'll be in either condition for long. Paul said we're to be content in all things. And the point of this story is to make sure that you see worked out in the life of Daniel, the proper response, whether you're running everything or everything's running over you. The first thing I want you to note is found in verse 10. 
Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. And his windows being open in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. In other words, as his habit was. The first thing I want you to know about this story, long before you get to the lions, is that this is a story about a man named Daniel who was faithful despite fear of the consequences. It didn't say that he wasn't afraid. It doesn't say that he didn't know that what was about to happen next. It says that he knew the writing had already been signed. He knew that the Medo-Persian law, which was absolute and for which there were no exceptions made, no equity, no no falling on on the mercy of the king, he knew that he was signing his own death warrant in violation of that decree by praying to his God. And yet this was a man who knew the writing was signed and yet nevertheless faithful to God. Now, there's a couple of things that you can note about this kind of faith that Daniel had. The first one was that when he was having to choose between whether to obey God or obey man, he, as Peter and the apostles, had to make a similar choice in the Acts of the Apostles, as recorded in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, I had to make. He chose to obey God rather than man. That's a unique kind of faith. It's not necessarily a popular faith. It's not a democratic faith. It's not one that goes along with the majoritarian rule. It's not one that submits even to earthly authority. It's a faith that transcends all time and all space, all places. It's the kind of faith that says the only authority, the only absolute authority that I will recognize is God's law. Now that kind of faith, that kind of unequivocal objective faith, it's hard to find nowadays. It really is. I mean, to the extent God's law corresponds with man's law, then we seem to be okay with it. And to the extent that God's law is corresponding with your culture or with your, what your friends want to do or what you want to do, you're okay with it. And you can appear to be very moral, very upright, very good by the world's definition if you just stay within that cultural moray. But if your faith has to actually clash with your culture, then suddenly you're not only not good, you're the problem. And we're seeing that over and over again within our own culture and our own society. We've got photographers who don't want to celebrate a same-sex marriage out in the western states being fined by our governments. We've got folks that are, that are refusing to bake the cakes for same-sex marriages, or uh, religious organizations refusing to allow uh, same-sex marriages to take place in their sanctuaries. And they're being taxed, they're being threatened with uh, litigation and persecution. Where is the opportunity for them to have their own religious freedom in a country where we value free exercise of religion? And here... We don't face nearly the kind of persecution you do in many Muslim worlds and other third world countries. Now, the second point I want you to notice is in the next couple of verses. 
about his faith. Because it says that his kind of faith acted even though he knew the writing was signed, but it was an open kind of faith. To the point that the king knew about Daniel's faith. You'll see that in verses 14 through 16. That his enemies knew about his faith. You saw that back in verses 4 and 5 where it says that they could find no occasion or fault against him because he hadn't committed any errors. The only way they could get him was verse 5. We shall not find any occasion against Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Even his enemies knew Daniel was faithful. It was a public kind of faith. It was a faith that recognized God as the absolute standard by all things. But it also was a public faith. It wasn't a secret faith. It wasn't a personal faith. It wasn't your opinion versus my opinion. It was the kind of faith that you, he wore on his sleeve that even his enemies, all, and even someone as powerful as the king of the largest empire in history at that point knew about. Look at what the king says in verses 14 and 15. Because in verse 11 and 12, the men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplications before his God. And so they went to the king and said, Has that, hasn't, Haven't you signed a decree that every man should ask a petition of any man, that, that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then they answered and said to the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree which thou hast signed, but maketh his prayer, his petition, three times a day. But look at what verse 14 says. Then the king, when he heard these words, got furious at Daniel. It doesn't say that. It says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the going down of the sun to find some way to deliver Daniel. Then these men assembled unto the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statue which the king established may be changed. So then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. We're not to that. Don't, don't think about the lions yet. We're not there yet. I want you to think about the kind of faith that Daniel had and recognize it was a kind of faith that shone so bright that even his enemies, even the king of this vast empire, knew about it. Knew that he was continually serving his God, knew to the point that they were distressed and, and the king couldn't sleep himself and was unwilling to, 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 to not at least try to undo what he had done because he respected Daniel's conviction and faith. And I want you to ask yourself, be as honest to your, with yourself as you can be. How would you have responded? I mean... Let's say you, you had enough courage to go ahead and pray. Would you have made any kind of slight modification to your prayer life? First of all, you've got to have one. How many of you have a prayer life? How many of you are too embarrassed of your God and your relationship with Him that you just feel a little too awkward to pray in a public restaurant? Do you know how many people have complimented me in a restaurant? Several. Do you know how many people have complimented me 
for something other than praying in public in a restaurant? Zero. The only thing that's ever made impression upon anybody in a public restaurant, and I've been in a lot nowadays. We all eat out a lot, right? Until I eat out a lot. The only thing that's ever impressed anybody, as far as I can remember, was the simple fact that I happened to be praying in public with my family. Several times people have come up to me, made a comment about it. Why is that so remarkable? Is that your habit? Now, don't get me wrong. If you're doing it so that people will compliment you, not going, not going to work for you very well. Lord spoke about this issue, right? He spoke about the fact that, you know, don't pray in public to be seen by men. If, that's, if you're struggling with that one, do it in a closet. All right? You'd be better off doing it in a closet, literally. But here's the point. If your habit is to pray before your meal, and let's pray that's at least your habit when it comes to your prayer life. Let's pray you do it before you go to bed, when you wake up, when you're with your children, when you're in worship and being led by righteous men whose prayers avail much. But if your habit is that, what does it take from the world to make you change your habit? A little peer pressure? Maybe you're on a date. Guys, girl doesn't know you that well. First time. Your habit is to pray before meals, but uh, I don't know her. She doesn't know me. I don't really know where she stands. We're going to skip at this. Is that How much does the world have to influence you before you give it up? My point is that Daniel's such an amazing example because he didn't change his habit. Not because you have to, to be faithful, pray three times a day, but because he did pray three times a day, he's not going to allow man's law to change that habit because he has more faith in God, more fear of God, and reverence for Him than he does man. Now, take that idea and apply it in a modern-day context. You know, there are some amazing colleges and universities in this country right now. And some of the most prestigious in the South, if I was to ask you all to name one of the most prestigious universities that you know of in the South, most of you would name one of about two schools. And one of them is probably Vanderbilt. And an interesting thing happened in 2011. Their director of student activities, their dean of students, actually passed a rule that controlled all student organizations. And the rule was that they forbid any belief standards for those wanting to join or lead any student organization. This rule, this policy, is still in place. They haven't backed down. The policy publicly adopted is a, quote, all-comers policy. And what that means is they don't want anybody excluded from a club. And maybe that sounds politically correct and cool to be all-inclusive and tolerant and, and loving. Maybe even may sound sort of Christianly to you. But the practical effect of this rule 
is that no student can be excluded even from a leadership position on ideological grounds. So, college Republicans, you can't refuse to allow a Democrat to be the president of your club. That's a little awkward. Gets worse. The environmental student group, they've got to welcome everybody that doesn't believe in global warming and let them run their organization. That's a little counter-agenda. And even the religious student organizations on campus, every one of them, has to allow a leader of their group. They cannot dismiss them, even if they renounce their faith entirely and they claim to be an atheist. You cannot stop them from being the president of your club, religious club. That's the kind of absolute sort of suppression of any kind of belief system uh, in a private university that has the legal right to do that, that ought to make every one of us worried. At the fact that that school still enjoys such a terrific reputation and how many parents would be so proud that their child could get into that school. And at the end of the day, the school literally stands for nothing and has mandated that no one else stand for anything either. Don't create a group and have any ideology or belief system. That's against the rules. Hmm. You know, Acts 2.47 says, speaking of the early church, a sort of high standard that we have to live up to. And the high standard isn't just the fact that the Lord was adding to the church daily. That's a lesson unto itself, isn't it? The high standard is the first part of that verse, which says, they were praising God, having favor with all the people. When I read that and I, and I think about the fact that they could convert thousands, and then I look at the Lord's church today, I ask, what are we doing wrong? How should we be trying to impact the world? Are we not being radical enough? Are we not being loving enough? Are we not showing Christ enough? I mean, what is it that's stopping us from having the kind of conversion rate, the kind of adding to the Lord's church daily experience that the early church experienced? And I think it's because it's coupled with the idea that they had favor with all people. And this is where people say, well, you know, doing right's not going to necessarily be popular. In fact, you've got to be willing to be unpopular. You've got to be peculiar, a different kind of people, a chosen people, a royal people, a priesthood, sure enough, but different and peculiar in the world. If they persecuted Christ, will persecute us. But how do you reconcile that with this verse in Acts 2.47? Let me suggest to you the solution is to recognize why this plot 
was so effective. This plot to put Daniel in the lion's den worked because of two things. It played to the king's ego and it played off of Daniel's reputation. The church is a non-factor in the world unless it's wearing its faith out in public. What we say in this sanctuary as boldly and powerfully as we know how to will not create the kind of impact and respect that we're looking for. And the truth be told, the favor that we're looking for from the world is not that they like us. It's that they know us, that they respect us, that when they need that kind of conviction and that kind of certainty and that kind of hope in their life, they know where to turn. Everyone won't like everyone all of the time, but everyone will need the truth some of the time. And the question is, if you are constantly and consistently faithful and clear about your convictions day in and day out, you may not win the popularity, test te- popularity contest today. But when that someday comes for everybody, they will know where to turn. But if you water down what you're about or what the church is, and if you confuse the world into thinking that all of these religious groups are Christians too, that we're all trying to, to, to uh, uh, obey the gospel, that we're all part of this thing called Christendom, and if you confuse the church into thinking that the thousands of different sects and denominations are in fact part of the solution, they will not know where to turn to when they need when they are finally ready and receptive to receiving the word. But if you can be clear about your message in a very simple New Testament sort of way, where you're just keeping it simple and leaving your opinion and your culture and your uh, uh, desires out of it and allowing Christ to speak through you and only Christ, then I believe we will find favor with all the people. Not all the time, not all the people all the time, but all the people some of the time. And the result will be one by one, one soul at a time, when they find the need to kneel at the cross, will know how to be added to the Lord's church. Does that make sense at all? How you can reconcile the two different sets of passages? Let me try one more thing with you. Look at a third point, then the lesson will be yours. If you think about the other story you know from Daniel from your childhood story days, it's probably Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Why were they thrown into the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3? It was because they refused to do wrong. Do you remember that? Now, they refused to violate their... their, well, we won't go through all the rules, but they refused to do wrong, violate their law. Now, and they refused to do it even if it meant death. And as a consequence, they were thrown into the fire furnace. And as you know, there was another person in the fire furnace with them that not only kept them from being burned up, but kept their clothes from even having the smell of smoke on them when they came out. Now, 
Here in Daniel 6, why was Daniel thrown in the lion's den? It wasn't because he refused to do wrong. There was no requirement that you have to pray in a certain position, in a certain posture, in front of an open window three times a day. That was his practice. Not a requirement. You with me? He could have easily rationalized, well, I better do it privately because I can do more good as the number one administrator of this empire than I can in prison. So I'll have my prayer life and commune with God, but I'll do it with the window closed. He could have rationalized, well, I won't do it. It's just 30 days after all. I've got a whole lifetime to pray, and so I'll make this sacrifice for just a little while. I'll make this one slight compromise because it's not, uh, I'm not saying I'm doing away with it completely. I'm just saying right now I've got to prioritize something else. After all, life is not just about worship. How many people are communicating that to their children by prioritizing travel ball? Ooh, am I stepping on toes now? Or prioritizing school and homework and an exam. Now, don't get me wrong. I expect my students to perform at an exceptional level. And I know how hard you have to work to do that. And I know the pressure of finals when your entire semester, your entire investment boils down to one test the next day. But if your God asks you to worship on the first day of the week and your test is on Monday, on what basis do you say, I'll just skip it this one time because I've got a whole lifetime of Sundays behind me to do it. You see the point? He was only commanded under the law to abstain from prayer for 30 days, a month. He'd have a lifetime of months to pray later. Yet, Daniel's faith didn't make that compromise. Not because it would have been wrong not to pray with your window closed or to pray less frequently, necessarily. But because... He understood what God understands about the nature of faith. If you don't use your faith, you lose it. If it's not growing, it's dying. If you do not have the ability to withstand the temptation, then you've already committed the sin. If you see a faith opportunity instead of it being a faith a faith. Uh, challenge, then you will ch- you'll take that faith opportunity to, to grow your faith and expand your faith rather than to retard it and dull it and wear it down. It's sort of like cooking a lobster. It's sort of like that slippery slope of life where we commit the little sin that leads to the bigger sin and to the bigger sin. If you cannot find that gap between that temptation and the consequence and react to it in a way that God would want, By not just not doing wrong, but by doing the right thing. You'll miss the opportunity that God has to build your faith so that you'll be able to face even bigger battles in life. I want to show you a couple of verses in this regard. Turn with me very quickly to Daniel chapter 6. I mean, Galatians chapter 6. These are just some verses about the importance of not just not doing wrong, but the importance of doing right, of doing good. Start with me in Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10. We're commanded that as we have therefore opportunity, 
Not as we therefore have minimum standards and requirements. And if you do not attend church at least two or three times a week, you're not a good Christian. It doesn't say that. It says, as you have an opportunity, to the extent the elders at this congregation have seen fit to open the doors and give you an opportunity to worship, for example, let us do good. Unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Why elsewhere in Scripture does it talk about us not forsaking the assembly? Isn't it to do good unto the household of faith? To encourage and build up one another? Even if your faith is is shored up and you're strong and mature enough to skip a couple of services and not be the lesser for it. The question is, have you missed an opportunity to do good for those in the house of the faith whose faith isn't that strong yet? Who are brand new Christian? And the impact that they'll have from being assembled in a group this large of young people, for example. Imagine if there was three of you here instead of 30. Imagine if there were only six people here to listen to this lesson instead of a whole auditorium full. You see the impact? Not on you. Not on them. Maybe they can all survive without a midweek bubble study. But the elders in their wisdom have asked you to be here. Not just for your own good, but for the good of others. The lost as well as the saved. Look at another scripture. James, or uh, just keep them in order. Let's go with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. But to do good. What's your mission in life? What's your purpose as a Christian? To do good and to communicate. Forget not. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy just to forget that at the core of what you should be about is doing good and communicating. The gospel message. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Listen to um, James chapter 4 verse 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. It's not just a missed opportunity, folks. It's sin. Now that's putting a little finer point on it, isn't it? Suddenly, sin's not just doing wrong. Sin is not doing right. And if we don't understand that that's not just something that the 20% of the church should be doing, that's not something that the paid preachers should be doing, it's not something that the folks that have been given the honor of being elders are responsible for, that for each and every one of us to fail to seize the opportunities that God lays before us, and each one of us have their own unique opportunities to influence people and make a difference for Christ in our specific pathway of life, that no one else will follow in those exact steps... To fail to take advantage of those unique opportunities is not just a shame, it's a sin. If we really understood that, how much more effective would we be in the world on a consistent day-in, day-out basis and be able to really test just how close we can get to that Acts 2.47 ideal of having favor with all the people and adding to the church daily such as to be saved. Now... One more verse. This one's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Peter says it this way. Askew evil and do good. Let him askew, go around, get around, avoid evil. And do good. You're not... Being productive when you don't sin. 
You're just not sinning. You're going around it. The doing, the active part of your faith, relates to what you do right. Not what you don't do wrong. And then he adds this to it. And it's important. Let him seek peace and ensure it. Reconciliation and peace and harmony to the extent that's possible with all men is fundamental to our ability to do good. And I think it's a secret to Acts 2.47. I think it's a secret to why Daniel was so effective. He did at great personal sacrifice the most amazing things as a man of God. And yet he did it without compromise. And he did it to the envy and respect of the greatest men, the richest and the most powerful, as well as his enemies. Now, tonight, I don't know. We're going to stop here, and I'll extend the invitation in a little while. But I hope that you realize something. We've been talking about a simple story that every child in this building knows. Daniel in the lion's den. And not once did I mention a lion. Well, maybe once. But we didn't talk about it. Because God's story is not in the mouth of the lion. He shut that mouth. God's story was in the mouth of Darius. It was in the mouth of his enemies. It was in the mouth of the king. Who as soon as as the day broke and he could release him under the law, he rushed to check on Daniel. And he asked, is the God that you serve continually, has he taken care of you? And he had every confidence that he had. Man of the world, willing to basically make himself God, and yet saw something different about this Daniel to the point that he was concerned about him. That's what I'm looking for us to try to emulate. That out of the mouths of our enemies and the world, the truth can be spoken. Just a moment, we're going to allow the rest of the group to come back together. And I want you to think about something. And I'll address it. How does the story of Daniel parallel the story of our Lord Jesus Christ?